Welcome to Evergreen Christian Church's Good Friday service. During this service, we will hear words from our holy text, words from the prophet Isaiah, and then the text about the passion narrative about Jesus' death. It's my hope by dwelling on these holy words, we can truly dwell on that which Christ has done for us. That by linking these texts together, we can realize what it is when Isaiah says that out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and shall bear their iniquities. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised. We held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to 
God. Next, I'll read the Passion narrative from John chapter 18 to 19. I'll stop throughout and make comments on the Passion narrative. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Judas often met with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. They stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. The end has now started. Judas has betrayed Christ. Christ surrenders himself to the authorities. Even surrendered, surrounded by his captors, Jesus acts in mercy and kindness. His own disciple strikes Malchus, and Jesus chastises Simon Peter for it. Violence will not solve this situation. Violence will do nothing but beget more violence. Jesus accepts that death is what comes next. Put away your sword, Jesus says. Power and might not come not from the sword, but from the death and the resurrection. Peace urges the captured Jesus. Do not take life for me, but my life will be taken for you. Continuing reading. First they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas and the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. 
Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face saying, Is that how you answer your high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They asked him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the cock crowed. Jesus gives an account for all that he's done. In fact, he doesn't need to give an account because others can do it for him. He challenges Annas to testify against what he has said. If he has spoken wrongly, then testify against him. Find a witness that could say so. And through speaking the truth and acting publicly, by working deeds and speaking words with clarity, the transparency he has has put Annas and his conspirators into a position where their corruption and malicious intent is revealed. What can you say against Jesus? If the teachings and actions of Christ were wrong, surely they would have something, have someone to testify against it. Annas, however, has nothing to say, can say nothing. He has no words of defense, no accusations to raise against Christ. His case against Christ is not founded in the law or in religious means, but it is founded upon fear that Jesus will uproot the power and the safety that Annas and his fellows have carved out for themselves. Fear that the threat Jesus poses against the Roman Empire is also a threat against the stability that the Jewish leaders have found under the empire. Jesus owns up to the works he has done. He has nothing to hide. He knows the things he has said. Therefore, nobody has any actual accusation against him. Peter, on the other hand, denies. Denies his association to Jesus. Denies the teachings and actions. Denies that he was around the very man who is now on trial. He denies it to the relative of the man whose ear he cut off. And this passage is both truth and lies. But take some heart. Peter, who follows Jesus imperfectly. Peter, who waits at the gate and denies knowing Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus three times becomes the rock of the church. He who denied Jesus became the proclaimer and founder of Jesus' church. Truth and lies. But eventually the truth sets all of us free. Continuing reading. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. 
They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, or for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release your king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it upon his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, 
But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate asked him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of skulls, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, with the two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Many evils conspire to kill Christ. When he was arrested, it was by the soldiers, the officers, and the Jewish police. The leaders of the Jews conspire to kill Christ. He threatens their power and leadership. The things he teaches and the way he acts threaten to rip control away from them. They, however, cannot punish by death. They turn Jesus over to the state, and although they cannot name a crime against him, they tell the state, if he didn't commit a crime, we wouldn't have handcuffed him and handed him to you. How many times have we heard this? If he's in handcuffs, if he was arrested, he must have done something wrong. He must be guilty. Jesus is deemed a criminal condemned to death before he can even have a trial with no actual accusation raised against him. Being who he is, being in handcuffs is accusation enough. It's enough to make him guilty by wearing his own skin. Right now, the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd is ongoing. I heard many people defend Derek Chauvin's actions simply by saying, well, if Floyd was in handcuffs, he must be guilty. There's a reason why they arrested him. And we have a savior condemned to death because he too was placed in handcuffs and told, he must be guilty. Look at him. It's actually a practice in Colorado that people are trying to stop where a police officer will take a victim of a crime and put them in their police car and then they'll have their suspects or a suspect. And the suspect will usually be surrounded by police officers and handcuffs looking guilty 
and they'll dry the, the victim of the crime not long after the crime has happened, drive the victim of the crime by the suspect, giving them three, five seconds to look at the suspect and then ask them, is this the person that committed the crime? And studies have shown that immediately after a crime, the victim is in no place to identify who committed the crime. And psychologically, we associate handcuffs and police officers with guiltiness, whether the person is guilty or not. So it's not surprising that one, this tactic is used on black and brown folks most often, but two, that the false identification rates go way up when this tactic is used. Jesus knows what it is like to be associated with guiltiness because of the situation he's in. But Pilate is still suspicious. This is a Jewish matter. Let the Jews handle it. He looks for a way out. He says there's no case against him. He knows something is wrong here. But again, Jesus' divinity threatens the Roman Empire. Roman emperors were deified. A Jewish peasant is divinity? No. He can't be king of the Jews. The Jews are occupied by the Roman Empire. Any king of the Jews is inherently a threat. Jesus is a threat that would incur punishment if not dealt with. Pilate still wants a way out. He can release Jesus, but the Jewish leadership whips the crowd into a frenzy. Now they're loyal to the empire. They're subservience to the emperor. We have no king. We have only the emperor. Pilate knows the truth. Pilate knows what he's done. When the inscription is written, it names Jesus King of the Jews. I have written what I have written, Pilate says. Pilate took the easy way, the way of least resistance, the way that was being influenced and politicked. Empire, power, greed, insecurity, apathy, all put Jesus on the cross. There's a theology, I might get this phrasing wrong, but it's penal substitutionary atonement theology, meaning that God, instead of punishing people, punished Jesus by killing him. But it's not God's punishment of the people that puts Jesus on the cross. It's violence and empire it's because God loves us so dearly. It's because Pilate was apathetic. He didn't want any more trouble. It's because the Jewish leadership was scared and threatened and acted out in violence. It's because God loves us so dearly that God died on a cross for us rather than conquering rather than having his followers kill all of the soldiers that come to arrest him, Jesus says, no more violence. 
But God loves us so deeply that God dies on the cross. And death can't overcome that love for us. Jesus is resurrected. God loves us so deeply and so fiercely that God died. We cannot be overcome by sin. We cannot be overcome by any distance or defect or flaw we find with ourselves. God died. That's how much Jesus loves us. Continuing reading. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now this tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes amongst themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus loves so deeply that while suffering on the cross, one of the last things he does is to make sure his beloved disciple and mother are there for one another, that there will still be community in his absence, that they will love each other, care for each other, and house each other while he is dying on the cross. He turns people of no blood relation into family. Continuing reading, after this, when Jesus knew that it was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of the hyssop and it fell, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. I was once chastised just a little bit by a man named uh, Reverend Wiley. I asked him to give a small homily at our seven last word service for Ellis Avenue. And the prompt I sent him said something about Jesus's life being finished and he gives up. I forgot the word spirit. I didn't say he gave up his spirit, I said he gives up. And Reverend Wiley responded, in his sermon, in his homily, saying that that was not what these words meant. These words meant much more. The prophecies were fulfilled. God's promise was fulfilled. The covenant was realized, Jesus says, it is finished because the passion, the mission, the ministry are fulfilled. We're yoked by sin no more. It is finished. What God has asked Jesus to do is done. It is finished. Reverend Wiley is a student of the spirituals, and he taught us this at that homily. <clears throat> Hopefully I do some justice. <clears throat> Lord, I've done, done. Lord, I've done, done. Lord. I've done, done, 
I've done, done what you told me to do. You told me to preach, and I did that too. I've done, done what you told me to do. You told me to preach, and I did that too. I've done, done what you told me to do. Lord, I've done, done. Lord, I've done, done. Lord, I've done, done. I've done, done what you told me to do. May we find the strength to do what God tells us to do. Continuing reading. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because the Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and their bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, They will look on the one whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed the body. Nicodemus, who at first had come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and the linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where they had crucified him. And in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Joseph and Nicodemus were men there were once secret disciples who followed not fully. And after his death, they fully revealed their love for Christ. Perhaps because of grief or out of regret, they did not do it earlier, but they decide they need to honor their love for him now by preparing his body for burial. In the absence of Christ, they live fully into faithfulness. In absence, they're faithful. We felt a lot of absence this year. These last few weeks, especially, we felt the loss of life and safety, but we felt a lot of absence. I don't think I need to even list all of the ways we are grieving still. In this death and absence, we're going to need the strength to be faithful. I really love this banner we have. 
I love the colors. I love the almost contrast between the barrenness of the black tree against the warmth of the sunshine. To me, it's a kind of combination of, of grief and shadow, but also warmth and hope of something new. It's beautiful. In this Good Friday, in the midst of grief and turmoil, before we get to the triumph of Easter, these words are especially strong for me. Your love is ever before me. Perhaps this is what the Marys and the beloved disciples saw, the love of Christ before them. Maybe this is what caused Joseph and Nicodemus to fully live into their faithfulness as such painstaking and loving care for the body of Jesus. And perhaps this will give you the strength to be faithful. To know that in death and resurrection and grief and despair and the hope for tomorrow, that Christ's love is ever before us. May you leave this Good Friday service knowing that God's love is ever before us. Amen. Thank you.